Hello everyone and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. My name is Jamie Batho and I'm really excited for the conversation that we have lined up for you this week. The theme of the episode is going to be the energy transition and the plan is to cover a lot of technologies um, and industries and discuss their role in the energy transition. Um, and we hope that we'll kind of get to a stage where we've got more of an understanding of the opportunities, but also really of what to be wary and kind of suspicious of and how, and how, to, how to question what different companies and different industries are telling us. Um, but before we dive into that, I have a co-host with me this week. I'm with Octavia Martin, who is on the climate change management and finance course with me at Imperial. So Octavia, I'll hand over to you and let you introduce yourself before we introduce our proper guest. Well, first, thank you, Jamie, for welcoming me uh, today as a co-host for the today's episode. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I think we see a herd flying in the room right now. Um, but uh, as you might have heard, um, I am French and my background is in data science and economics. Um, I then worked in banking and consulting companies within their sustainability teams on portfolio alignment and climate risks. And uh, this year, as my wonderful classmate, Jamie, I am part of the CCMF cohort, and I'm really happy to be a part of this uh, little family. So, well, I guess that's enough for, for the introduction. And let's start to talk about uh, our guest today. Um, so we are super excited to be here to talk about the energy transition with uh, Laurent today. I first heard about Laurent while uh, listening to the podcast Redefining Energy. Uh, I think it was on the... On, a, on an episode about energy storage. And I wondered, well, I think we need to speak to that old dude. He has some <laughs> nice things to say, and we really want to, to learn more and uh, understand a bit more how is the energy transition happening today. So Laura has been working in the clean energy investing field for a long time now, and is now the manager partner at MegawattX, a leading global platform on renewable energy assets. He is also the host of Redefining Energy, a podcast that discusses how the world of energy is being radically disrupted through tech innovations, finance, markets, regulations, and digitalization. Um, so if you are interested by energy topics and energy transitions challenges, I really urge you to give it a listen. Well, first question, maybe Laurent, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your uh, your uh, journey toward the energy transition? Uh? Well, uh, thank you very much for the intro introduction. And uh, it's great that we have three hours so I can talk about my, <laughs> well, we my long career. Then. <laughs> uh, so I, I'll, I'll try to, to make it uh, short, but, uh, you know, in a certain way, there come a moment in your professional life where you get what we call the green bug. And it just makes sense to see that what needs to be done and somehow you align your career and your expertise to help that great, that great cause. Um, and of course, because I was, first of all, I was an accountant. I became a trader later, but uh, uh, it's, it's really a, a world of numbers. And even trader, it's it's a world of fixed income, and then we can go in the detail of what's a fixed income trader versus what's an equity trader. That's a bit the difference between a, a scientist and an artist, in a certain way. And and in the various position I had in the energy transition for the past 25 years, uh, in various companies, some big, some small, 
uh, investment banks, the, 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 the vision was always the same. How to bring more money, investment into uh, the energy transition, which was, on, which was not named energy transition at the time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Did it have a name? Or? Well, uh, so I was at PwC in the late 90s and uh, doing some environmental investment, uh, more like waste recycling. And all of a sudden, somebody gave me this uh, paper say, oh, you know, did you sign this stuff called the Kyoto Protocol? Do you want to <laughs> have a look into it? And, you know, I say, ah. <laughs> and uh, we wrote the first report and, you know, after that, 10-page report, we become like the experts. And a lot of companies say, oh, what does it mean for our business? And, you know, people got very excited, especially around emission trading, because that was inside the, the Kyoto Protocol. And pretty fast, I was uh, called, well, PwC, but I was called by the uh, European Commission, who had this idea of doing the EU ETS, mm. which was an idea which was a bit floating around alongside the deregulation of the electricity market. And uh, they say, you know, can you help us, uh, you know, structure the EU ETS, which is something we did for uh, almost three years. Um, so, and, and in fact, the whole story uh, is, is pretty simple. Uh, it was, there was a lot of working groups that were coordinating and Shell was on, on one of them and Shell was trading SO2. So it was the sulfur dioxide market in the US. At some point, we were going nowhere. I told Shell, can you just like, you know, take the whole US program, you just, you know, replace SO2 by CO2, and we're going to flip that to European <laughs> Commission, which is, so all the words about allocation, grandfathering, banking, vintage, compliance period, I mean, all the wording that's probably quite familiar to the, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are, who are trading carbon. Uh, in fact, just was a gigantic copy paste from the uh, from the U.S. program of sulfur dioxide, which was working quite well at the time. And of course, it got uh, smashed by a, a tiny U.S. church at some point, as most <laughs> U.S. programs do. So anyway, so that was my first foray around emission trading. And uh, so we just uh, finished COP26. I said, ah, have you gone to COP26? My, my friend, I've been to COP7, <laughs> COP9, COP10. And I don't remember a lot all the discussion. I remember boozing a lot. <laughs> but so I'm too old, too old for this. So you decided not to go to this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm too old for this. <laughs> so uh, you've been in the energy investment field for quite a long time now. and. Um, what, what led you to launch Megawatt in 2013 and uh, how can it help to ascend the energy transition? Yeah, so uh, one probably one last thing because there is something I've participated in creating, which now everybody uses. So I should have just taken a, you know, a copyright of one cent is scope one, scope two and scope three. I was part of the, the <coughs> something called the GG protocol. I remember when we decided to, you know, because we started with direct and indirect, and at some point it didn't cover very much, so we decided to split it into scope one, scope two, and scope three. So if you're if you're pissed, pissed off about this, I'm I'm one of the culprits. So so after after putting all those you know rules together, one of my clients said, look, 
apparently you, you know what you're talking about. We're launching the first carbon fund. Would you like to, to run it? I said, mm, yeah, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> you know, bye-bye consulting, welcome investment banking. And uh, well, I learned what fund management was. I was in, I was in my early 40s. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, you can have learned on the fly. And thanks God uh, we got lucky or we got, you know, first mover advantage. But anyway, the fund returned 30% per annum. So all of a sudden people say, look, we don't really know what you're talking about, but, you know, that's good. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty good. And then it grew and I managed to transition from Paris to London, where I work investment bank, Lehman Brothers, until they, they exploded, then uh, Nomura. Uh, and then that's the point where you had the, the Copenhagen thing and really, uh, I, f I mean, I really fell down. Because uh, we, we had an extraordinary run during all the 2000s and after Copenhagen, the financial crisis, everything. I mean, the price of carbon went from like 25 euro per ton to like 2 euro per ton or something. There was nothing to do. And um, I um, I'd managed to create a hedge fund because I'd made a bit of money. So I've created a hedge fund around emissions, but it was really go going nowhere. And... Yeah, I mean, talking about haha moments, so I'm going to go back when I was in investment banking, when I finished my first fund. I was so happy, you know, I had raised 150 million. I don't know, we had seen like 200 investors in order to get five because, it was, you know, climate, emissions, you know, what are you talking about? Uh, which is a good meeting because sometimes they say, oh, I'm very, very interested. It means, you know, I have no clue. What, so <laughs> at the end, we got 150 million and I was so proud, you know, we always, I always compare that experience of raising my first fund as giving birth to a hippo. <laughs> After that, I said, okay. So anyway, so I was in the elevator. I was so happy, you know, at my first fund. And everywhere I went to, you know, conferences, you know, all those guys that were talking, they had no money, you know. Me, I had 150 million to, you know, to spend on projects and, you know, methane capture or renewables or forestation or you name it I was the king so I was kind of cocky you know and so I arrived in this elevator and so and come this young guy from an, another trading floor and you know and he looks like he had you know mother milk still wake up on his face and I just tell the guy oh you know I just you know nine months I raised 150 million and the guy looks at me and say I raised four billion this afternoon I say <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I realized <laughs> the magnitude of, you know, what I needed to do because that, that money, I mean, I wanted that money, you know, to invest, you know, for green stuff. But, you know, it was, that's where you realize, you start realizing what's a liquid market, what's an illiquid market. And the moment you're liquid, pff, the amount of money is crazy. When you're illiquid, I mean, each transaction, valuation, pricing, you know, it's a fight. Because you don't have any price reference. So anyway, so now that was, I don't know, 204. So now we go back to uh, 13. And I was still trying to trade, but it was a very difficult uh, trading environment. Because, you know, you can be the best surfer, surfer in the world. If there's no wave, you know, you can't surf. So I had this kind of program with my team and, you know, we were scouting the price of electricity 
you know, to feed models or algos or whatever. And one morning, the guy comes and says, the program's, the program's broken. Say, what do you mean program's broken? Oh, yesterday at 3 a.m., price were negative. And the, 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 the software does not account for negative prices. I say, yeah, price cannot go negative. It's impossible. And then we, we kind of uh, analyze everything and say, oh, my God, it's the wind. There's been too much wind. And that's how price went negative. Uh, in fact, the, 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 the system were telling the coal plants, stop, you know, we don't we have too much power on the system, stop running. And of course, the coal plants, you know, at three in the morning, they continue. So they had to force the price to go negative. And in my head, I say, this is it. You know, that's where the renewables were starting to arriving on, on the German grid. And they were not just eating the cherry on the cake. They were starting to eat the cake. And this is where I say, look, I'm, I'm going to turn towards assets. That's how I created the, the MegawattX platform, which basically was um, arranging the transaction for projects of solar or projects of wind, which is something I've done um, pretty much since then. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean that. I love, and also the when to go back to your scope one, scope two, scope three oh. story. We uh, we've just done on our course a big carbon accounting project. So <laughs> there will be lots of people listening to this and cursing you. Don't be, <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, so I maybe wanted to turn to one, maybe one technology. The first one we wanted to talk about was nuclear, and you we obviously know that you have a bit of experience in the nuclear industry. It's something we've been talking about a lot on the course. And opinions are really quite split on it. And I think it would just be interesting to get your opinion on its role in the energy transition um, and really why it has the reputation it has today. What's your, yeah, what's your take on it all? Okay, so I myself, I'm super conflicted. I really, over time, I, I was very, uh, I was a pro-nuclear in, in the year 2000. And it was the moment there was, there was a nuclear renaissance that people were announcing. And because at the time, the, the, the price of renewables was super expensive. I mean, really expensive. Uh, people, I mean, if you look at the first uh, program in Italy, in Germany, in, in France, but even in the US, you, you know, the price were like, I don't know, 600 euro per megawatt hour. So basically, uh, I mean, it was really politically motivated, which proved a success. But at the time, you were saying, look, if, if you look at, if you look at the, the PNL of those companies, you had 10%, which was selling power, 90% receiving subsidies. It was absolutely insane. Uh, I, I talked to, to, to some German politician at the time, you know, no, recently I said, why did you give so much money? And he said, we gave money because we didn't believe in the technology. Uh, so we gave them too much. We thought we would have, uh, I don't know, 20 megawatt. And before you know it, we had uh, 20 gigawatt. And they, they believe it so little that they never put, uh, you know, a time limit or a, a volume limit. And, you know, once the German have decided something, even if it's a mistake, you know, they're going to they're gonna push it until the end. Whereas the others, the Spanish and a lot of others, they, you know, they just pull, pull the plug when the program proved too, too expensive. So going back to nuclear. So first of all, the nuclear people, they are by far the most intelligent um, engineers. In the 70s, uh, 
the, the, the most intelligent students were going in the nuclear industry. It was really seen as, you know, the, the, the solution for everything. And what happened is that during the 80s, uh, sorry, uh, during the 90s and the 2000s, that was the best, the, best of, the best of times. Prices of electricity were high. Um, the, the, the plants were still relatively new. You still had all the, the people who had built those plants, so you, you know, could manage them. It, you know, it, the, the, those nuclear plants were minting money, and they said, look, we're fine, we're going to take care of climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you bother financing wind or solar, which costs like a fortune? You know, we're, you know, we're good. And, you know, over time, over time, uh, um, you know, price of renewables start to go down. Uh, the, the, because there was an oversupply of power, nobody really was I- interested in reinvesting because the plants were new. And then Fukushima arrives and it really... I mean, already in Germany, they were a bit wobbly because, in fact, Chernobyl was m- much, much much more dangerous than uh, what people have said. So a lot of people started freaking out. Uh, there's also the, the, a mental relationship to atomic power because when Germany was split in two, you had like nuclear power, nuclear rockets uh, in East Germany facing West Germany and vice versa, short-term missiles. I mean, people were, I mean, the, the, the Russians really play with fire at the time. So there was a real anti-nuclear sentiment because they associated uh, military nuclear and um, civil nuclear. And let's face it, whatever they say, it is linked. It is linked. I mean, you, you need nuclear, you know, the first nuclear plants, you know, they were put in submarines or, they, you know, they were put in aircraft carriers because you can't wage any war now without a, a nuclear submarine or a nuclear aircraft carrier. So whatever the people from the nuclear industry say, it is linked. And if you look who has nuclear power now, the five members of the UN Security Council, basically, because it's super expensive. But, you know, when you want your seat at the table, you're going to pay for it. When you just do the economics, it's like, ah, uh, it's like, uh, that's just too much. <laughs> so then after Fukushima, it all went pear-shaped. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment where really the renewables went down. But now that the climate urgency is, is, is getting bigger, and people will realize you, you can't rely 100% on renewables, whatever some academics say. Because I, I looked the, the other day, 4 p.m., um, uh, the German grid. Product, uh, consumption, 60 gigawatt. One will say, great, you get 60 gigawatt of wind, 55 gigawatt of solar. But guess what? Those two guys combined, they only produce one gigawatt. So the rest, coal, mm-hmm. gas from Vlad, <laughs> <laughs> and whatever nuclear is left. So at some point, the, the rational means if, if you want really pure, uh, you know, green power, there has to be, just for security of supply, uh, because, because we can talk about you know, the waterfall of what's an energy system, but just for security of supply, you need you need some nuclear. 
you can't have just one plant. It's an industry. You need to have the people. You need to have the, you know all the, the supply chain and so on. So the thing with nuclear is either you go big or you don't at all. Yeah. So which means ju just going to be certain countries who can afford, because make no mistake, it is expensive. But when it's about security of supply, because the triangle of energy is super simple. It's number one, security of supply. That's the most important because you need to keep the lights on. Second is price because you don't want a taxpayer or the ratepayer to pay that security of supply. And third, if possible, green. Of course, now it's green. And now each politician has to play with that triangle. Of course, when you have no problem, people tend to for forget security of supply. They're going to go for green and cheap. But security of supply always, in fact, the real energy expert, they say, first and foremost, they can, uh, security of supply. No, I agree with you a lot uh, on what you said on nuclear. I think um, there is a misconception also in the global opinion about the safety of nuclear. When uh, when we look at events like Chernobyl or Fukushima, it's only uh, Chernobyl. I think it's maximum sixty thousand uh, death. Uh, when you compare to the deaths due to pollution, it's seven million people today. So I think that uh, nuclear. Uh, still has a long way to go in the energy mix, and um, and it's really interesting uh, to to have your opinion. But uh, it's true that it's a really difficult uh, technology to to master, and it's only for the people that have the the money to do to do it. So well, look, I'm I'm not going to start doing uh, statistics. Uh, the great Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin used to say, "One one people dead is a drama, one million dead is a statistic." Okay, so let's don't do statistics. <laughs> the, uh, if you look at Fukushima, and it's fine to say, okay, nobody died. And of course, this happens once every 20 years. But the cost of Fukushima is 100 billion. 100 billion. So the problem of nuclear is a problem of tail. You know, you've got your bell shape um, of events, and of course, it's really at the tail. But the moment you eat the tail, the costs are immense yeah. something goes wrong you know a region can can disappear mm. so uh, you need a government with really deep pockets and maybe nothing's gonna happen for 20 years but if anything happens the costs are going to be insane and and the, the the nuclear people they know that to say well we're 99.999 percent safe and they're probably right. But the question is, what's the cost of the 0.001%? Oh. Some people want to play with it, others won't. And that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way it is. Yeah. On the, on the energy security piece, then, I mean, your, your security is then based, if you are with nuclear, is based on your supply of uranium. So, and this is something I don't really know anything about. So I wanted to ask you about really how secure those supply chains are. Okay, so, I mean... That I can speak because in my long career, I've traded yellow cake. I was the only bankers who, who because I'm French or, uh, or now I'm French and English, but I, because I spoke French, I managed to open a physical account at uh, Aiva. Or it was a Kojima or something. Anyway, so I could physically receive the yellow cake from mines in Namibia, Canada and so on and then resell it to whoever other people. Which, when you're, when you're a trader, 
to have the physical part and the financial part, that's the dream. Uh, that's the dream because you can sell futures, options, whatever. I mean, so it was pretty lucrative. Anyway, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> how secure are, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so how secure? Yeah, look, uh, there are, there, I mean, there were like 35 mines of uranium in the world. I could probably name them way back when. Now it's, um, if you look at the countries, there's not much. I mean, the, the first one now, I, I believe, is Kazakhstan. But it's really almost a, a Chinese colony or Russian colony. But you can still get, uh, you know, some uranium there. So there's a bit in Africa, Niger. There's in Canada. There's in Australia. That's pretty much it. And they don't. And in fact, those miners, they don't make much money. Now, at the time, there was the big program was what they call a megatons to megawatt which was a program at the end of the, the Russian, uh, the, sorry, the, the Soviet uh, system um, that the, the, the Americans would get back the nuclear warheads and they would dilute the uranium in the warheads because it's like, I don't know, 98% concentrated and you, you go down to 4%. And in fact, the whole U.S. nuclear plants run on, on former Soviet warheads for 20 years, which was not really good for mining. Because the, the price were, were were pretty cheap, yeah. but I I, I I think that that program has stopped. So, is there a risk? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's probably a risk. Is that? But those people, those nuclear people, they live in. A, it's very funny. They live in a different universe. Look, they they managed to they managed to convince the government to put twenty billion in a you know fusion project in the south of France called ITER which is the most absurd scientific experiment on this planet, 20 billion. So you can inject 500 megawatt. The stuff runs like for 30 seconds to get out 500 megawatt for 20 billion. I mean, the number of stuff you can do for 20 billion. So <laughs> supply chain of yellow cake, it's not market. It's a strategic thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. <laughs> the answer is, <laughs> I've seen stuff. Uh, my conclusion, it's it's above my pay grade. Okay. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that we have to be pragmatic in terms of energy transition. And it's true that nuclear is a low carbon energy. So uh, in my opinion, I think we need it. But um, so if then nuclear is not like one uh, of the of the main uh, solution for the energy transition, how are we going to uh, transition from fossil fuels. Um, the IEA just stressed that um, to in order to achieve the alignment for a 1.5 degree pathway, we needed to end investment in new fossil fuel um, supply. Uh, the COP led to a resolution to phase down inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Um, <laughs> this does not seem to be enough. So how do you uh, think yeah. we can effectively transition from a fossil fuel to a cleaner energies? Yeah. Ambition, efforts, pledges. That's really going to work. What's working right now is you have $300 billion per year of investment in energy transition. Those $300 million per year, they're done by investors, they're done by banks, by funds, by utilities, by strategic, you name it. And those people, first, they want to make money. 
You know, they want to see their money back. They don't, they don't do that because there's an ambition. They don't do that because there's a pledge. They don't do that because, you know, efforts need to be made. They, they, they do that because, you know, they make money. Every time I've seen a, a system when you want to have the energy transition, okay, there's two types of policies. Sticks and carrots, okay? Okay, stick. Ah, oh, we're going to put a carbon tax. We're going to prevent uh, uh, no more ice uh, after uh, 240. Uh, ban on this, ban on that. Now, it, first of all, it's always hard politically to pass a, a stick uh, policy because, of course, the guys, the guys get beaten, they lobby. That's fair. So you need to start with carrots. So somehow you need to subsidize and help the way to, uh, you know, for the competitors. And if carrots don't work, well, you need to use the stick. But if you have the mindset of efforts, somehow punishment, you're going to end up with policies which are punitive and we're going to lose because politically it's not going to work. So, um, okay, so for instance, let's take um, cement. Cement for 20 years, you know, they've given them the, the, the carbon uh, allowances for free. And, you know, oh, you've got those pledges. I mean, go back to 202, you know, sustainable cement. I mean, that, that stuff, uh, you know, uh, has been around. And at some point you say, okay, guys, apparently carrots don't work. So now, you know, we're going to use the stick. And, and, and that might be more efficient. And there are other sectors where, uh, you know, carrots are sufficient. So, you know, let's not burn some political power uh, uh, on sticks. So it's it's complex. And people say, oh, yeah, uh, carbon system is going to fix all problems. No, carbon system, they work for certain type of industries. They work pretty well uh, 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 to, to against coal, you know, because just coal was, used to be cheap. Now it's not as cheap, but, you know... Coal with carbon gets more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. So, but uh, in transportation, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work. Well, I mean, oh, you need to put carbon at like uh, you know, you know, six hundred, uh, you know, dollar per, per per ton, and by that time, the government's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, the policies are. I mean. I don't blame, you know, people at COP and it's good that you have activism and it's good that you have academics who do all those curves and explaining me this, this and that. But, you know, we're going to stay with, with, with fossil fuel longer than, than we should just because they're damn cheap. <laughs> and economics count. And I, yeah, I mean, Sorry, uh, I'm a bit of a downer here. No, no, I'm, I'm, but it's, I mean, the thing that I think about with fossil fuels is that everyone talks about energy and transport and getting around and providing power. But if you just like look around this room, how much stuff in this room is made from fossil fuels and where does all of that material come from in a world where we don't have fossil fuels? That's something that I don't know enough about, but that does kind of... Well, look, fossil yeah. fuel is, sim uh, I mean, oil is, oil is simple. Oil is 70% uh, transportation and 30% uh, chemicals. And the chemicals part, yeah, it's, a, it's our everyday life. But if we can reduce uh, oil consumption by uh, 70%, uh, mm -hmm. it's probably not going to be 70% because uh, uh, planes and uh, ships, that's going to be harder. But, you know, if we can get uh, within the next generation... Um, basically, all the, the the light trucks and the cars go electric. That would be massive. Mm. 
So I know people want to go to zero, but and, and people talk about how to decarbonize sector on this. Say, look, you've got easy to decarbonize sector. Yeah. We've got the technologies there. Uh, the prices are kind of okay. You know, let's roll it out. Let's invest in, uh, you know, more battery materials, uh, more lithium mines, more nickel mines, uh, more uh, the, 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 uh, the smelters. Okay, they're polluting. Yeah. Okay, fine, they pollute, but uh, still, it's you know the life cycle analysis showed that uh, EVs are eighty percent less polluting than okay. It's not hundred percent. It's eighty percent. I take the eighty percent, and then uh, big giga factories uh, build EVs. That's you know, that's a win, and we go from hundred million barrel per day to fifty million barrel per day, and this is a great win. And by that time, the new generation will have come with solution for the rest. And I'm sure there are a lot of solutions for the rest, which are still in labs and, and so on and so forth. But really, the and I mean, it's what the markets are doing right now. The investment in lithium, then this 250 gigafactories under construction in the world. This is amazing. 250—that's uh, 5,000 gigawatt hour. This is enough to power 70 million cars. And this number from, come from uh, Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, which is the, the best source on the subject. 70 million cars. The, the, the top consumption, uh, the, sorry, the top production of cars uh, two, two or three years ago was 100 million cars. Wow. Means we're there. But we need to finance all this. And rather finance this than ITER or whatever, uh, you know, crazy technologies. And, and, you know, you talk about uh, clean power. I would like more money put in hydro because the technology is there. Now, the sites are not there all the time, but hydro could be much, much better used. I like to see some stuff in geothermal um, because, I mean, for God's sake, the, 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 the sun inside the Earth is warmer than the sun in space. There's a lot of energy under our feet. So, I mean, okay, you go Let's to ice. No, I mean, uh, I mean, it's just digging and <laughs> drilling. We do it for fossil fuel. Why shouldn't we do it for geothermal? Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm intellectually, I, I, I'm a big fan of geothermal. And then you will have all the batteries, digital, and digital, a lot of things can be done, uh, of course. And this is, you know, endless, the, the number of digital things. But if you talk about hard tech, rather than go to nuclear fusion, Okay, you, you, you build nuclear plants all the way, but just tell the guy, it's, we do it, it's going to cost a fortune. Hmm. But we do it for security of supply, yes. and, you know, and so on. But it's still necessary to, to build some nuclear plants in order to... It's necessary just because the supply. one we have, they start to, getting, to, hmm. to get old. Yeah. So just to, okay, fine, we're going to, in the UK, we're going to build uh, in Clay Point, and probably we're going to build size well, but sometimes six are going to retire. So, so the balance is just maybe it's just gonna you know stay uh, uh, where where we're where we're right now. Mm -hmm. I, so, yeah, I really like your vision about uh, we have to act on the solution that we already have now, and uh, it seems that we are still lagging behind on on a lot of those topics and waiting to really deploy the technologies that we already have uh, at hand. So, um, it's it's an interesting uh, point of view that I that I completely uh, back up here. Um, so m maybe to, to go on with the, with the discussion, um, 
I think today many young people are looking to have a real impact, uh, to find meaningful jobs. And, uh, and I must admit that I'm not particularly convinced about most of the job offers that, uh, that are on the market. So in your opinion, where should young people be focusing their efforts? It's like uh, on the energy transition, maybe? Well, the, the, the thing is, if you compare the energy transition now versus what it was even five years ago, I mean, five years ago, you had wind and solar, but now you've got renewables and then you've got uh, every, everything around transportation, digital. I mean, the, the number of things which are available is much, much, much bigger. So that's, that's one chance. So, you know, in terms of, for me, there's limited added value, but again, that's personal. It's limited added value to go in a place where you're just going to put more reports. Okay, more reports about this, reports about that. Because my experience, because I was writing reports and then all of a sudden I had to manage a fund. And I can tell you what you learn is that one trade, one investment, one deal in terms of knowledge is worth more than 100 reports. It's like those guys, you know, they watch the sea on their screen or they watch, you know, on Google Maps or on Instagram, and then they sail. And I can tell you, when you sail, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden, your vision of the sea kind of changes. Yeah. So don't go in a job where you're going to write reports. <laughs> Do stuff. Uh, that, so that's one. Now, if you want to go into a, the energy business, learn the energy, learn, learn the math of energy. And took me a lot of time, but now it's very clear in my head. You need to be able to, you know, take a ton of coal, uh, figuring out what's the energy efficiency of a power plant or, uh, uh, you know, the price of megawatt hour or the MBTU or the TTF in megawatt hour. And you need to know it's 3.4 and you need to know that you divide by the energy efficiency of the turbine. And... You know, and that's how you get the price of power. So you, all, all the gymnastics uh, around, around energy, this is like you need to learn it so you can master it. And, and you know, when I, don't, I mean, I met that expert and I said, uh, do you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because in the in the Henry Hub they trade the net gas per MBTU a million British unit, which is a I don't know, million cubic feet or something like this. And in Rotterdam they trade the TTF title transfer, which is the Rotterdam hub, in megawatt hour. And I said, yeah, it's totally different. I said, no, it's not different. It's one is three point four, the other, you know, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> but you know, but that person was a big climate expert, yeah. but they could not even figure out the correlation between the, the price of gas in the U.S. and the price of gas, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So this, you need to not know it by heart. It needs to be a second language that 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 that, that, that you speak around that, and. You, I mean, I, I watch the market, even if I don't trade anymore, I watch market every day. So, you know, in my head, you know, uh, $80 per barrel. In fact, it's not that much uh, going forward. But if you know that gas originally was linked to oil just because of the energy content, which is 17%, now you realize that the price of gas you have in Europe, which is, uh, again, you look at the TTF, 100, 100 euros. So it means 
$30 per MBTU. Then you divide by 17%, which is my oil content, means you multiply by six. We have a barrel, we have a gas price in oil at more than 200. This is killing industries. Mm -hmm. it's, it's literally killing industries, which means that, in my opinion, a lot of the big uh, gas consuming industries, you want to keep them in Europe, that's fine. You will need to pay because otherwise they'll go to Qatar or they'll go to Texas where the price of gas is at $5 per MBTU and not $30 per MBTU because you, you can't do chemicals. Uh, or I would say basic chemicals at, at, at those prices. Mm. And then you say, oh, great, we have reduced emission. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've clo you, you close those plants. Mm. It's, it's, it's not, but you want to work in the energy transition, you need to know uh, uh, the, the, those, uh, the, those metrics. Now, again, that's just part of the equation because I'm a fixed income guy, so I trade, you know. Mm. Uh, the, the volatility, markets, you, you need to understand options, price of edging. If you work in the equity space and you say Tesla or Rivian or these batteries, this is, these are stories you tell. Yeah. You know? These are great stories. Tesla, most wonderful company on the planet. I mean, I worship Elon Musk every morning, every night. But, no, but he, had, he has delivered. Uh, and that means his power is now, you know, he put a tweet and said, tomorrow I'm going to raise uh, $12 billion. And, you know, bam, he got $12 billion with a tweet. Ah. You know, that's the beauty of liquid markets. And people love that story. But, of course, you got all the crooks. So you've got Nicola, Lordstown, and I can name a few others. Uh, which really, it's like, ah, oh, come on, that stuff. I mean, and then, puff, the guy's worth, like, uh, uh, you know, there's a SPAC and the stuff is valued 10 billion. I say, never going to work. And then, you know, investment bankers, they call me and say, what do you think? I say, it's a scam. Yeah, but, you know, uh, we have all these ETF products, or, you know, ESG, so, you know, we put the paper. So that's, you know, that's a different universe. The, the universe of equities, the universe of dream is the universe of buying the future. And... Uh, yeah, so at some point you have, I don't know when uh, we'll air, but you know, when, when Rivian was produced, zero cars is worth more than Volkswagen who is producing 10 million. I say, look, I'm too old for that. But that's equity. Equity are stories. Yeah. They, you know, they're nice stories. Yes. So you go see venture capitalists and if you're smart, uh, you can raise money on ideas. And, and, but I'm not good at that. <laughs> So how then, when you talk about needing to understand really the, I guess it's the science and therefore what drives the economics of all these technologies, how does someone get there if they don't have an engineering background and they, I mean, where, where do you get your information, where do you, what do you read and what are you actually, where are you getting your knowledge from? Well, the beauty is now the amount of information you get is absolutely, uh, I mean, crazy compared to what was uh, 20, uh, you know, 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So, I mean, okay, so let's talk about books because I believe in history. So if you want to work in energy transition, there's one book that everybody needs to, to read. It's a book which is like 30, 25, 30 years old. The Prize by Daniel Jurgen. It's the history of oil. And you understand when you read that the, the implication between uh, the political power, uh, economics, geopolitics, and oil. 
plus very well written, very funny. Uh, and he, he put a new book last year called the, the, the New Map. He has put a few books after that, but I mean, the prize is really the, the one you really need to, to work with. And, and again, if you're an activist, environmental activist or academics, you know, you can poo-poo oil and, and those guys, you know, what they've done, climate denialism and so on. That's really bad. But the reality is the, the growth of the 20th century, even today, is based on oil. Uh, so it's like it's our blood, but it's a bit contaminated. You just can't remove the blood. <laughs> or it has to be done <laughs> with a lot of, uh, you know, precision. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, that's, that's really a book. And then, uh, look, I read, I read, I read, I, I, I read all the time. I've written down some, uh, some, some stuff here for you. Um, YouTube, you've got, you've got interesting stuff on YouTube. I love, um, uh, a guy called uh, Just Have a Think. Yeah, oh, yeah. I watch uh, him as well. Uh, it's good. It's yeah. good. Uh, Engineering with Rosie. She's very funny. And uh, if you like Evie's, uh, Sandy Monroe is uh, an American guy, uh, uh, kind of mechanics and his stuff. He, you know, you take a chainsaw and he cuts cars in two and he analyzes the, the engineering. is pretty good. Um, there's a lot of things on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Paul Martin, Michael Barnard. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know I, I read those people rather than the IEA reports. And, um, but yeah, that was you know, my question over like Lazard and the levelized cost of energy and how much effort goes into those. But essentially, if you are just taking that at face value, you're relying on somebody else's analysis at the end of the day, right? And how far do you go with? Look, I mean, the the, the Lazards, the Lazards are, are interesting because first they do a very uh, thorough job. And then the thing is, they've done the same report for 15 years. So even if now LCO is not probably as important as it used to be, at least you see the, the continuation. But at the same time, uh, okay, plus it gives you a kind of overall vision. But then you need to, if you're into solar, you need to be much more granular. You need to know what's inside the solar panel, what are the supply chain, okay, polysilicon, silver, uh, and then, of course, problem with uh, human rights and, you know, those type of things. So... It's it's a good entry, um, but if you're really into one of the subjects, you really need to dig deep into okay solar. You really need to dig deep into solar. Uh, you know this year the price of solar panel has, has doubled. Boom. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, twenty cents, uh, twenty cents a watt. Now thirty cents a watt. Of course, the big question everybody is asking: Are they going to come down again, or you know did did we have the best of it? Um, uh, you know, wind, uh, fascinate, I'm fascinated by offshore wind. Absolutely remarkable what has been done because it was really not a given. Uh, the, the first attempt to put offshore wind were done in Germany by guys who were coming from the onshore industry and said, ah, nothing, you know, we're just going to put our, our, our turbines out there. And it was a disaster because the, the sea was different. Mm -hmm. And the guys who cracked the code were in England, the oil man had been working in the North Sea for decades. And I said, no, oh, no, that type of steel, that type of cable, that type of things. And that's how they cracked the code. <coughs> Which makes me kind of, 
a bit wary of, you know, politicians who want to put, you know, to open an area for offshore wind, uh, where, you know, they need to invent the permitting, invent the relation with fishermen and, and bring uh, a supply chain who has not been, yeah. you know, accustomed to dealing with the sea. Now, of course, they've got it in the end because now we've we, we reached uh, critical mass, but it's not that simple. Um, and in, in in the North Sea, we have been blessed. There's a lot of wind. Uh, water is shallow. And uh, there was a lot of expertise yeah. uh, around working on the sea and a government who was relatively lenient in terms of uh, permitting. Well, then I wanted to ask if we're kind of talking about oil and gas, then that's obviously, I mean, these guys, when you describe your how good is getting rid of that 70%. I mean, these oil guys don't want that. That's that's the end of their, or a real threat to their life. So what does really the future for an oil and gas company look like? And I guess we know a lot about how they're trying to greenwash, but what do you actually think the opportunity for them is in the future? Look, I, I think you're the CEO of an oil company. You're really interested in the next five years because that's where your bonus is going to be. And the next five years are going to be pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're going to be super profitable. And of course, you're going to redirect probably five or 10% of whatever you, you produce uh, to try stuff, you know, to try stuff. But, uh, you know, trying stuff is not, it's not going to be sufficient. Um, and again, we go back to Tesla. Every three years, uh, Elon Musk has bet the house. You know, uh, he, he bet the house when he built the, the, the Gigafactory in the desert. I would say, you're crazy, it's never going to work. He bet the house, uh, launching the Model 3, you know, went, uh, you know, almost uh, went down with it. And he was barely out, decided to launch the, the factory in China. So he, he doesn't he doesn't put 5%, yeah. <laughs> he puts 100%. And that's how you've got disruption. So there, there are certain sectors. Offshore wind, I think they're going to be okay. And uh, um, EV charging, maybe. But look, it's never going to be... You're, ne you're never going to replace the oil and gas. You know, if, you, if you're lucky, you're going to get to 20%. Reduction? No, 20% of their oh, yeah, activity yeah, yeah. is going to be energy transition. You know, you you can't build a business case on the carbon capture storage or forestry yes. or so on. So, so the oil, the oil and gas company will stay in oil and gas, and and uh, they're good at it. And uh, there's a lot of oil and gas uh, around, and um, there still be demand. So, so what do you do? How do you? I mean, what is? What yeah. the only way? Well, the only way is, is switching. Yeah. The only way is switching is, you know, where is gas used, where is coal used, where is, uh, uh, but you know, coal, if you look at coal, the, the people who, who, who use coal is, you know, is their domestic coal. Uh, China, 95% of uh, what they use is their domestic coal. So it's, we go back to security of supply. Plus, uh, I don't know, X million miners who are uh, good supporters of the, of the Communist Party. And in India, it's the same. Uh, India, 95% uh, 
okay, so you've got a few plants ar around the seashores who want to import from Australia or Indonesia, but the rest is called India. Mm. So, and same for South Africa. And people use the, the, the especially the developing countries, they use what they have. And, um, you know, you can go to COP and you can wave all the flag you want. Uh, um, they, 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 international trade of coal really international trade of coal is down to you know f what there are f five six countries who are kind of exporting a bit mm -hmm. russia is exporting to poland uh um just the, the this colombia the us trying to export a bit and the rest is australia indonesia and that's it and you see a lot of coal is is, is relatively local i mean Indonesia is sending it to Thailand or Korea or Vietnam. Uh, this is this is um, because it's not very look. You want to put a renewable grid. You need to put a lot of digital and uh, batteries and uh, you know wind farms, solar. How am I going to balance? You know, coal is you know technology has been there for 150 years. So you know. You don't even need to put, you know, you want to import LNG. Oh, my God, it's 160 degrees. I need special coolants and everything. You know, coal, you just put it outside. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> from a technological point of view, it's a bit it's a bit of a no brainer. Uh, so I'm, I'm fine. Uh, let's send Greta to uh, Chattigar or Jharkhand uh, where you've got you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, digging coal and uh, she, maybe she's going to convince them. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm a bit uh, politically incorrect, but, um, you know, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, that's true. Like, how can I don't. Make... That doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it, but, you Thank know. you. I'm, I'm, I, feel, I feel more uh, at ease now. Uh, also, maybe, like, maybe then how can we make the transition happen in, in those emerging countries? Like uh, we heard the plan uh, of 8.5 billion in going to South Africa from... <laughs> I see your face, you, you don't seem... Uh, no, uh, okay, so look, it's... Uh, because we have to do it, but it's true that how we do it? How so do we do it? Solar, 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 solar. At least with solar and batteries, you can probably... Uh, reduce the, the, the especially in countries like uh, you know pretty well sunny like India South Africa, you can probably reduce the just the, the, the coal use by um, yeah by by probably a good fifty percent. Mm. Uh, so yeah, uh, solar solar is easy. Uh, wind wind is tough. Mm. Uh, wind is not very predictable. You need a, you need a, basically you need a very dense grid to absorb the wind mm. and, and being able to jump out when there's too much wind, jump in uh, where, where there's not enough. Where solar solar is very simple, yes. but it's not going to take hundred percent. But I take the first fifty percent. I take the first thirty percent. I take them. You know, all boils down to your first story. Yeah, I take I you know whatever gain I take. That's so true. yeah, so solar of course. And who's going to pay for it? No, Should solar it? pays for itself. <laughs> <laughs> so then, why is it not happening? Then why is it not yeah. happening? Why well, then... it's it's. Look, I for instance, you take the most um, conservative anti-climate government in the OECD, which is Australia. They are pushing for new coal, new gas, new this. You know, all the permits, zero control, subsidies if you want. You know what? It's the biggest market for rooftop solar. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, they put the equivalent of three nuclear plants on roofs. Why? It's cheaper. <laughs> Period. 
it's cheaper. And uh, you know, now say, oh, at some point it was too much. Uh, you, you can't export. Okay, fine. We'll put batteries. Now we can because this is our rich countries. But um, you know, it will come to you know it, uh, South Africa, which is middle income. It will it, it will come. At one point, the solar uh, yeah. will become cheaper than than the coal in, in those countries. Well, I mean, this is different because one thing is the production at industrial scale. The other thing is the 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 price at the the end, if yeah. you know, at the the, the consumption level. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, one thing is to say that's the cost outside my plant, but then you need the trans distribution, transmission, and so on, which basically double the price. So if you if everybody has a, a solar on, on on his you know above his head, you you skip all those prices, yeah. and that's uh, that's why they're they're, they're cheaper. So what needs to happen then in in batteries and storage? So you've obviously got kind of new innovations recently, like the startup Form Energy, and they come and they announce that they've cracked the iron air battery and it's now yeah. scalable and commercial. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, they, they crack the purse of ArcelorMittal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what so what needs to happen in in long duration and in storage? Uh, yeah, I I think uh, flow energy. Yeah, uh, flow batteries. Yeah. I think flow batteries are, are, are going to arrive. Um, I, by by talks I have, it seems that there are physical limits to how much you can store in uh, lithium-ion batteries, yeah. because in a certain way the lithium-ion batteries, uh, the size of the bathtub, uh, and the size of the faucet and the drain, they grow together. What you want is you want the faucet and the drain to stay the same, but you want a much bigger bathtub. That's how you get 20 hours, 30 hours, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's where flow batteries are better than uh, lithium-ion batteries. I think lithium-ion batteries below beyond eight hours, they, they're going to become very expensive. Now, uh, there's, there's a lot of research, a lot of uh, uh, companies um, trying to do flow batteries. For, for what I see, the most promising is ESS. Uh, because they do iron flow battery. And uh, so th those guys, they look very promising. Form, if it works, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. But it's a miracle. It's, that's what I can say. So sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. For me, it's still at miracle stage. <laughs> Maybe Tesla was a miracle? No, Tesla was, no, Tesla was just, uh, uh, you know, was just a, a visionary guy who had money, he had money, he had his own money, he didn't have to pitch too much. You know, he put the money he made at PayPal. But, you know, Tesla was very clever because when they put their, their, their first car together, they went to see Panasonic and they just opened the camcorder and they said, you see that battery, you get one battery by, by uh, video cameras, we want 4,000 of them. They never invented the battery. They took the battery, which was in every camera, but they say the crazy idea is we're going to put 4,000 of them and we're going to link them and we're going to put a, you know, a management system around it. That was, th that was their, their, their brilliance. They invented just one thing. If you want to invent, invent three things at the same time, uh, it's not, uh, not, I mean, yeah. for me, it doesn't work. It's always for me. Uh, I haven't seen that type of things uh, working. So, yeah. So, ESS, yeah. Because ESS, they say, okay, we're going to take flow battery like a, a zinc or vanadium, but zinc vanadium are too expensive, so we need to change the electrolyte or whatever it is. That's why you see I'm not an engineer. Yeah. So, <laughs> the anode, the anode. The anodes yeah, and, and the thing. So, yeah, but, and plus I see there's so much um, 
now uh, progress done in the cathodes and anodes and the coating and this. I mean, I have have problem uh, following, but it's just the beginning. Where well, well, there's a decade in front of us of technological improvement, which is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So I, that gives me uh, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, and that is, I mean, all these technologies are super exciting, and the breakthrough I think with the form energy are claiming is that they've got a. They've got a membrane on their cathode which can pass oxygen through but can't pass the electrolyte through. And when you just think about like what that what they're trying to, I just that boggles my mind that they're they're inventing like a sheet of paper that can pass oxygen but not any small liquid molecules, and it's just it's nuts. It's crazy. So yeah, no, I but hope there are. one thing is to get that stuff working. The other, as you as as you are in the commodity market, at the end of the day, you need to buy and sell electrons is that there is a market structure which allows you to get your money back. Because why, why do lithium-ion battery uh, work right now? And you see, I don't know, 10 gigawatt has been installed. I don't know if it's the park or last year. Uh, but and why do you see every week some new lithium-ion batteries, which, by the way, are going to be LFP rather than MMC, but that you know what I'm talking about? Because there is the frequency market, there is the ancillary services, there is the balancing, but these are services within the first half an hour. This is where really the battery makes money. So the guy said, look, most of my revenue are within the first half hour. I need to charge and discharge and so mm -hmm. on. You know, frequency control, and, and frankly, that's the best because, uh, and then uh, after half an hour, this is where normally you can switch on the gas plants. Okay, so which means that all those long-term or long duration, they're not competing for those short-term services because the, the lithium-ion battery, they just, they're automatically triggered. You've got guys like LimeJump who's, uh, you know, doing that, that's remarkable. But you're competing with a gas plant. So you need to know your spark spread. You need to know your, your clean spark spread. You, you know, you, you need to know that. Mm -hmm. Here you are, unless the government says, okay, fine, carrot, we're going to do a special price tariff for the flow batteries so you'd get more money. So that's how we can displace gas. But it's, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's no government is going to do that on an unproven technology. So it means you need to install the technology, show it doesn't make money um, on, the, on the pure balancing competition. Or they're going to start on islands, or they're going to start on microgrids. So that's going to take time. Yeah. And once the technology is established, well, it needs to fight for market share. Yeah. Yeah, I would say maybe we should focus on the technologies technologies that we have today, deploy it, and uh, the next one are going to. Well, it's, they follow. It's like a train. Yeah. So yeah. So long long duration storage. Yes, but it's not. I remember 10 years ago, when you had solar, you had like a thin film, uh, non-silicon, uh, non and then you had, a, uh, I mean, you had like a lot of technology. You had, a, of course, concentrated solar power. And for a while, concentrated solar power was, was, was cheaper than, uh, than, uh, um, uh, than solar PV. So a lot of money was put in, uh, you know, those big towers you see in Andalusia with yeah. the mirrors and everything. And then the price stayed there and then the price of PV went down and that was bye-bye. So that, you, you have a lot of 
potential technology on your table. You also have Tidal, uh, you know, those type of things. But at the end, you're buying and selling electrons. Mm. And the governments, fine, they want it green, but they want it cheap <laughs> as much as possible. Because, you know, the, when your government, every day, there's 600,000 people asking for support. Yeah. You know, oh, education. Yeah, of course. Police, of course. Uh, military. Yes, naturally. The elderly, we love them so much. Education, <laughs> the kids, yeah. yeah. Our university, look how... So everybody's asking money. So yeah. the guys say, oh, I've got this new technology. If it's market-based, you know, I, you know, <laughs> otherwise just take the queue. Yeah. And of course, they say, how much votes? How much votes? But it's for the planet, you know. Like I say, yeah, but you know, if I finance uh, that hospital or, you know, that road, uh, you know, they get 300 votes. So, you know, that's the downside of the... <laughs> Of democracy in a certain way. I understand now why you are against uh, the ITER program, <laughs> like uh, financing the the new technologies uh, that are not uh, actually market based. Actually, it needs to be market based because somebody needs to buy it, yeah. and somebody needs to buy it. You just don't produce it for you know the pleasure of producing it. Yeah. Somebody, somebody needs to buy it, yeah. and 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 that somebody rather spend more on uh, you know food or vacation than on you know, power. <laughs> so that's it. So, yeah. you know. Uh, no. So I'm, I'm maybe going to, this will maybe be the last topic we cover because uh, we have been here for a while and I don't want to take up your whole evening. <laughs> but I'm going to say the H word ah. <laughs> and see what a bang we ah. get. So hydrogen, give us, give, hydrogen. Us your, give us your five, ten minutes. I wanted to have his opinion on hydrogen. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> well, it's the same. Do the math. Do the damn math. When, when you start doing the math, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, we can do the math. Uh, the, the, um, OK, so let's green European production of hydrogen, the one which is done out of gas right now. Mm -hmm. um, 12 million ton, OK? You want, you want it green? You need to put electrolyzer. It's 50 kilowatt hour per kilogram of hydrogen. You agree with me so far? Yes. 12 million, 50, OK? So when you put all this together, Knowing that a nuclear plant of one gigawatt running 6,000 hours, people say it's more, let's say 6,000 hours, produce six gigawatt. But the problem is to replace your current production of uh, hydrogen, you need 600 gigawatts. So you need 100 nuclear plants to green the current hydrogen production. But that's not enough because people say, oh no, we're going to put that in train, we're going to put that in plane, we're going to put that in heating, we're going to put that in. And you probably need it in steel. I think steel is a good idea. Mm. Uh, so that means probably a bit more. But for the rest, my God. Cement? But I don't know. People say, no, cement, no. I mean, I, you know, I ask, you know, I ask a cement expert that guy say, why are always people saying about hydrogen and cement? <laughs> There's no plan. <laughs> this is but we hear about it. So, yeah, so steel, yeah. Still, because uh, yeah, still, that's pretty much the only way. Ammonia production also maybe. But ammonia, that's uh, that's uh, that's forty percent, fifty percent of uh, what's going on. Yeah. And 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 that's it, you know, green. But look, the amount of power which is needed just to green the current production is phenomenal. And then when you talk about, and that's just the power story, and then you have the infrastructure story, which is the. You can't reuse any of the pipelines that we've got at the moment. You have to, I mean, it's a whole new infrastructure, essentially. You're not piggybacking off anything. 
You have to invent it or not invent it, but invest in it all again, innit? Yeah, yeah, but that's why you need to to read uh, Paul Martin's blog on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, you've got all the all the details. <laughs> but yeah, apparently, uh, plus the molecules pesky, it's a tiny one, tends yeah. to leak a lot. You need to change compressors, and yeah, I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. One number that I was pretty impressed also listening to your podcast, actually, ah. it's the 99% of the actual uh, the, of the current hydrogen is uh, is produced produced using fossil fuels. Yeah, that's that's astonishing. That when we speak about hydrogen, we all think that it's green, that it's it's the next uh, silver bullet for the high energy transition. But uh, in the end, yeah, no, it's 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 clean when you burn it, but not when you produce it. No, plus the losses, the, I mean, the losses, every time you want to store it, move it, compress it, decompress it, every time you lose 30%. So, you know, you start with 100 and then you can use probably, you know, 15% of it. Yeah. I mean, you took any any battery, even pump hydro, the round trip efficiency is 70, 80, 80, 90%. That's good. But uh, any, any process, look, the, the worst process in terms of energy, but this is for... Uh, Um, uh, war, war economies. When you are at war, energy efficiency. What yeah. the heck? So it's the what they call the fi um, the Fischer-Tropsch, yeah. which was invented, you know, uh, yeah, by the German, yes. the coal to liquid because yeah. they needed liquid, yeah. you know, just to power their tanks, and they could not import oil, and uh, because there was there was none. So what's the efficiency of that? 15 percent. I don't know. Okay, and then of course that ends up in a place. Not even the Chinese that say, oh, it just doesn't make sense. The only place when they still have that is in South Africa, Sasol, because it was created under the apartheid regime. They cannot import oil, and they say we've got a mountain of coal, so price is irrelevant. We need some fuel, and and, and now uh, Sasol is uh, uh, has been trying to pro to you know promote uh, coal to liquid for the past 25 years and every year the go you know the government needs to pay yeah. because the economics are not there and uh, so so then how much how much money is going to be pumped in to hydrogen and lost do you think and how 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 much is that going to stall the energy transition because it's no, not going no, to what it needs to go like, to look i mean it's Look, you need to be serious at some point. Uh, if I took a company I admire a lot, by the way, which is Shell, uh, they've been wonderful, the best traders, probably of uh, energy in the world alongside Vitor or, or Glencore, those stuff. You know, wonderful company, extraordinary engineers. But those guys, they're going to return 8 billion to their shareholders. They're going to return 8 billion. And I talked to Shell, I said, <laughs> out of the 8 billion, Can't you put like a hundred million aside to do a bit of a hydrogen project without asking you know, for government money? And they say, well, we're not crazy. It's taxpayers' money, not ours. I say, okay, come on, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny one. Yeah, I guess that well, if, if more people are actually thinking that, then you maybe don't have a hydrogen bubble that will burst and it's, you need, yeah, it's the governments that run the risk. But do you think there will be a kind of hydrogen bubble? Or will it just not? Well, really I mean, if you look at the if you look at the price of certain shares, yeah. uh, the Ballards, the Plug Power, the Bloom, the but look, it, energy transition are messy. 
Okay, the, sometimes energy transitions are simple, and the one I like always to um, make reference to is in 1860. For 40 years, 50 years, you've got an industry who delivers bad years, 30% return on capital, good years, 80% return on capital in the energy business. And you know what it is? Whaling. Fishing whales. You don't, you don't fish whales for the meat, you fish it for the oil. And you would sell oil for lightning. And all of a sudden, rock oil arrives, and it's 10 times cheaper than whaling. And in five years, the whaling industry is decimated. Well, I would say annihilated. Mm -hmm. Okay? And how do they... And you see how... Uh, and then... So how do they, the it's, it's only in the, in the price. You know, and then they do the refining. And when they refine, in fact, they put that in ponds and the rest in the river. And they manage to, to collect 10% of kerosene and the rest in the river. Okay? And, and, and then creates fortune. And then arrives, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Rockefeller. Uh, yeah. Rockefeller, and he gets... A German chemist. There's always a German chemist who cracked the code of refining, and all of a sudden, rather than than, rec than getting 10% of the energy, he gets 60% because he invented the the vapor crackers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But his only business is lighting. So it's all the all the little lamps you see in Western movies. And then comes Thomas Edison, and Thomas Edison with his first plant, which is DC, not even AC. Tesla's doing uh, an AC at Buffalo with uh, George Westinghouse. Okay. His first plant is, I don't know, it's like a, a, a 10, one megawatt plant. And there's so much loss along the way, uh, you know, the wires and, you know, to the light bulbs and everything that I think 99% of the energy is lost along the way. But still, the price of power he gets is 10 times cheaper than the, the oil from Rockefeller, which basically... <laughs> He's getting bankrupt as electrification goes, and then he meets Henry Ford, and the rest is history. And then Henry Ford decides to put some some petrol engines, but it was not that was not given because the problem is you still needed to crank uh, the you know the engines, and the, the the guy who invented the electric starter is the guy who created I, I don't I don't know his name is the guy who created General Motors after that, wow. and it's just at that point that it's game over for the. Uh, you know, for the and it's the beginning of the love story between uh, oil and, uh, and auto automotives. <laughs> so yeah, but know your history. But every, those transitions are easy because every you know every time you divide the price by ten. Yeah. Now the energy transition that we are putting on people is difficult, and there've been you know uh, there's been several billions of VC money put in biofuels trying to compete against oil. It's difficult. Uh, oil is, is a difficult uh, enemy to beat because it's cheap, it's, it's versatile. You can store it at, at room temperature. You can, you know, you can truck it, you can put it in boats. Uh, moving gas, moving coal is already more difficult. You need trains, barges and so on. Oil is, is, is wonderful, you know, it's absolutely wonderful. So uh, going after oil is, is difficult. Very, very difficult. I, I think Elon Musk cracked the code, but he's the first guy in a, in, in a hundred years and because he's probably a bit crazy. Uh, and thanks God he is. Yeah. So, uh, so energy transition, uh, when they are simple, they just arrive. 
you know, rooftop solar in Australia, it just arrives. Uh, but other parts, you, you want to force something against established interest, inertia, it's tough. So you need to remain humble. But things are moving. Yeah. Looking, if you look the past 20 years, a lot of progress. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, I was, that would be my last question then is, how optimistic are you? I mean, we've talked about how we're not going to win ourselves off oil, but how optimistic are you? There? I'm super optimistic. When I look at the amount of money, when I look at the talent of people, you know, and now you know, even financial markets, you know, the biggest investors, if I look at the biggest company on this planet, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft, and everybody say we want to go zero on it. This is, I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm super optimistic. Much more than, uh, yeah, much more than, uh, than 10 years ago, that's for sure. Much more than after Copenhagen. I yes. guess in the end what we need is more, it's crazier guys, right? <laughs> crazier yeah. guys like Elon Musk. Well, I, yeah. how many of them do you need is the question no I th no I, no no I th no look you probably need uh, one look he managed on his own to disrupt the whole space industry and uh, the automotive industry which is uh, I mean there's not a lot of other industry to disrupt so um, I think we, we we need also uh, you know very steady uh, investment. In fact, we need a lot of stupid people with a lot of money, rather than one intelligent guy with a lot of money. And those people, you'll tell them, it's not risky and it's going to deliver a good return. And the amount of stupid people willing to invest is absolutely amazing. So, yeah. So, so that's we, why that's that's the that's okay. Pioneers are great, but then for 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 that wall of money to be invested, you need to be steady, deliver good returns, reduce risk, and so on. Yeah. So one crazier guy, a lot of stupid people. <laughs> yeah, they're stupid, but that's fine. I'm stupid. We're all stupid. <laughs> We're all stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's maybe a good uh, a good tone to finish on is stupidity. So yeah, I will thank you very much for coming on. I've really yeah my, really enjoyed having you on pleasure. the podcast. Um, yeah, Octavia, I've really enjoyed having you as well. Thank you. And yeah, do give redefining energy a listen. It's um, yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to their episodes. It's twenty twenty five minutes of insight that you leaves you thinking something different and learn i've definitely learned a lot so go check them out if you if you have 25 minutes in your day but yeah thank you Laurent. so that was our interview with Laurent segala congratulations if you made it to the end i know it was a long episode but i hope it wasn't too much of a slog i think it was a really good conversation and so we didn't really want to edit out any of the good juicy pieces of insight i thought i'd try and pull out a few of the key points that octavia and i took away um from yeah, Lauren's insight into working in the energy transition. So firstly, do the maths. To properly analyze the different technologies that are going to play a part in the energy transition, you need to understand the maths and the science that drives the economics of each piece of technology in order to make comparisons between them. His second point that I noted was really to think about market structures. Technology that's going to succeed has to be market-based or will be market-based, so you need to be thinking about who will pay for whatever the technology is and how investors in that tech will recoup their money. Thirdly, Laurent's advice to young people who are looking to work in the energy transition was to go into a role where you are doing more than just writing reports. Do stuff, as he put it. And finally, I wanted to recap the book and the resources that Laurent mentioned that he used. So firstly, the book was The Prize by Daniel Jürgen. On YouTube, the channels that he referred to were Just Have a Think, Engineering with Rosie, and Monroe Live. And on LinkedIn, he recommended following the blog of Paul Martin. 
I'll obviously put links to all of these in our show notes and I'll also put a link to the podcast that Lauren runs called Redefining Energy. And again, I would recommend we give that uh, that you give that a listen. So that's the end of this episode. Next week, I'll speak to the founder and CEO of Circular, a company that works to works in supply chain traceability and helps track scope one, two, and three emissions through supply chains. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and I hope to see you next week on the Green Minds podcast.